Hello and welcome to another special episode of the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. This is the conclusion of our two-part discussion with Robert Howells about secret societies and how they relate to and differ from cults and magical orders and how all of this might inspire our games of Call of Cthulhu. There are all sorts of stories about the horrible things that the Masons have done to try to protect their secrets and to silence people who've um, said more than they should. I don't know how much of that is actually true, but you know, the rumors have been, or well, stories have been buzzing around for years. Is that part of protecting the secrets? Yeah. Uh, so some of the earlier rituals, they would reenact cutting your throat. Um, mm. The one that actually has power in Freemasonry is not the threat of death, it's the threat of ruin, that you will be driven to financial okay. ruin. And they potentially have the power to do that if they're, if they're well-connected enough. And had, I mean, there's certainly absolute abuses of power. There's a really interesting political one. There's a book called The Men's House, which is still available. It's a Masonic publication, 1926. It's kind of like a, an annual, an annual digest. Um, mm. And there's a piece in there where they say, in the recent elections for the president, it was discovered that one of the candidates uh, was a Freemason. And we believe this went against the vote. You know, this was held against him in the voting, uh, which is unfortunate. But no matter, because the other candidate was also a Freemason. <laughs> and that's in a Masonic publication. And it's um, oh, no matter wow. what you think of the Freemasons, things like that, that, that put me off. Um, yeah. And that leads you to a kind of realisation like, Santa, a friend of mine, he, you know, there's uh, an American friend of mine is looking forward to the election in November. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, it's great. You can vote, vote for the rich white old guy who's right wing or the rich white old guy who's right wing. Mm. Um, the way to run a country is to create the government and the opposition. Yeah. And then you're never out of power. Um, mm. I did advise them, you know, don't vote for the one that's allowed more people to die, twice the amount of people that yes. have died in Vietnam, two, uh, two Gulf Wars and 9-11 put together. Uh, maybe not yeah. that one. But um, in terms of choice, yes. no, not really a democracy. So that kind of thing is quite scary because uh, that's where you're looking at secret societies in a way where they potentially, you're back to it coming down to human nature and greed and power distorting people when people start looking for the influence of secret societies in for example picking presidential yeah. candidates and so on is there actually anything from your researches into say the masons and other secret societies that indicates that, that is a fact that that really does happen or is this just sort of playing into conspiracy theories and paranoia i i think i don't think presidents are, are that important anymore i don't think world leaders have as mm. much power as as we give them credit for yeah. but certainly there are organizations and groups and industries that have a far more control and the ability to pay congress people and things like that is kind of an absurd system mm. i don't think secret societies are that functional at that level and certainly they never set out to be i, I do believe that a lot of them set out with very good intentions um to support society um 
they do get used for political ends. Uh, it's said that the Boston Tea Party started in a Masonic Lodge. It was an agreement in a Masonic Lodge, and they left the Masonic Lodge, went and threw all the tea over the side. Mm. So there, there are these kind of moments in history. There's a rule in Freemasonry that you're not allowed to discuss politics or religion in the Lodge. The problem is they'll go oh. for dinner afterwards. So you kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like, well, yeah. that doesn't entirely work, does it? You've talked a lot about the the roles that historically secret societies have played. I, in the present day, are they still organisations of power or of knowledge, or are they more sort of gentlemen's clubs these days and networking opportunities? Oh, sadly, yeah. There, well, there is a whole layer in Freemasonry, certainly in the UK, um, Grand Lodge, uh, that is the night, they are called the Knife and Fork Brigade. They turn up for the dinners, they turn up to hand out their mm-hmm. business card, and um, they don't really have any influence. They're, they're kind of slightly out of their own ends. They barely get above the third degree. Um, they might gravitate. I mean, they have lodges of librarians and lodges of policemen and things like that. They had two Masonic lodges in. Uh, Scotland Yard at one point. I think they still got one Masonic <laughs> Lodge in Scotland Yard, um, which, considering they exclude women, uh, is mm-hmm. uh, very worrying in terms of promotion and fairness and equality of pay. Uh, I'd say within the police force, I'd, I'd really be concerned about that. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. there are lots of these kind of groups where you – and you are gravitated, but then there are still research lodges. There are still – there's a place called the Canonbury Institute in London that has a library, and they did esoteric talks. And that became a kind of counterbalance that tried to set itself up almost as a counterweight uh, around the more mystical mysticism, uh, symbolic. Uh, and they were very into research, and they were really big on kind of research. The problem was I found that they mostly just researched themselves. So it was a huge exercise in navel-gazing of saying, well, how old is Freemasonry? Well, it comes from the 17th century. It doesn't. It comes from a lot earlier. And there's a lodge record to prove that, but it's not my research, so I can't share it. (laughs) Um, Okay. So, yeah, there's an overlap um, in Scotland, definitely, with uh, the Sinclairs and that kind of Roslyn Chapel, Templar. Well, you've got the Mason's Pillar in there as well, but beyond that, there appears to be a kind of lineage back to when, because the Templars were never suppressed in Scotland. So they continue mm. to exist. And then you get this uh, Masonic lodges appear and a crossover. Um, and a lot of pagan symbolism in there as well. That they were just, it was like they were absorbing hidden beliefs and hidden knowledge uh, and evaluating it almost and keeping it and protecting it. So they were quite interesting. Mm. So in. In modern day, yeah, I mean, if you were interested in kind of, I guess, it, it would be a way into researching something like alchemy. Some of the Western occult traditions, if you didn't want to join a fully-fledged uh, magical order, like the Golden Dawn, if you weren't into ritual magic, um, and you wanted something more academic, uh, it, it may be the place to go. It may actually be a... Uh, a way to further your researches and access that kind of information. So, yeah, I think mm. they, they may still have some value. Certainly European Freemasonry takes the occult far more seriously as do Europeans. So it's much they're much more open to that kind of thinking and are much more rooted in mysticism and the occult um, than they are over here. 
Um, and yeah, there tends to be different orders that have slightly different interests, like the order of Lazarus being far more orthodox Christian, but still carrying mm. all these traditions and these informations. With the order of Lazarus, now you, you talked about the overlap there with the military and so on, um, which makes it sound like they have maybe not an agenda but a purpose. You, you kind of gravitate to what towards what you are. So I wouldn't join mm. it. It, it, it. Over time, I think they built out where, you know, somebody will join. Uh, there was a, my, uh, a U.S. colonel I knew had joined. And presumably mm. the people he socializes with are reasonably the same. And the people he's recruiting from, if he recruits, are from the same areas. So that happens over time. But they did seem to pick up this mishmash of people that were, in theory, at odds politically and globally, when in fact we're quite happy to sit down next to each other at peace. I quite like that. Mm. That's that's like Saladin sitting down with Richard III or something and, and yeah. you know, being able to talk as adults instead of just bashing each other over the head. So, mm. no, I don't, I don't think there was an agenda. You know, it's not like... The, the classic one was P2 propaganda do in Italy. Mm. That was a, a British Masonic lodge, although they don't admit to it. They'd like everyone to think it's a European yeah. lodge. It was actually an English Grand Lodge UK. Um, yeah. But they disowned it. They disowned it about a year before it went bad. And that's another kind of case of they should have reported it and blown it up, but instead they walked away from it. Yeah, so P2 had links to the corrupt side of the Vatican Bank. It was an Italian mm. Masonic Lodge, um, and it started recruiting journalists, politicians, military, uh, bankers, but they're all fascists, and its aim was to create a fascist coup of Italy. So they were recruiting people in power who were right-wing enough that they would overthrow the government. They would have the military behind them. They would have the press behind them. I mean, that gives you that alone gives you enough power to run a country. The press mm. can completely ruin a president, and the mm. military can come in and move him out. And the public think they've been doing a, a service. Um, yeah, you press politicians so they had people to put in place, and and then it kind of blew up. And there, there was money laundering. There was links to the Vatican Bank, which is a bank that has never been audited. Um, and you wonder where the mafia's money is being laundered. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> the yeah. middle of Italy is a good place to look. Um, it, dire financial difficulties. I mean, real boom and bust situation, the Vatican Bank, because it's never been properly managed. So that's one of the risks to the Catholic Church. Um, and yeah, it, it all kind of came out and was exposed uh, and blew up publicly and was in the press. Um, and it, it kind of, it was called Propaganda Due, P2, and it was seen as this political attempt, and it was kind of distanced from Freemasonry, but that was a Masonic Lodge that went completely AWOL, um, hmm. that nobody could police or shut down um, and, until it collapsed. Um, so, yeah, there are, there are risks around that, around that kind of level of influence in modern society, yes. Yeah, there could be Masonic lodges plotting all manner of things at any level you know uh, depending on what they've got control of but that's not necessarily a function of them being masons or a, an agenda of no. masons it's people using the power structure and the networking and the fact that there are powerful people involved with it as to use the the masons as, as a tool is that right well it's a hiding place 
it's mm. you're acting in secret so once you're out of the view of grand lodge you can do whatever you want potentially and if you recruit the right people yeah so if somebody in in a lodge who's in charge of a lodge, lodge has their own agenda they can start to pervert it towards that so that does become a risk um, i mean often they break off and they'll become their own thing but yeah in, mm. in that particular case uh, that was very worrying now, the order of the solar temple Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, can you can you expand upon that, please? Because yeah, I, I I'm not really too familiar with that. Oh, it's been a long time since I looked at them. I met someone who was in them once, and he was still somewhat in fear of his life. And I got mm-hmm. the impression he ordered a solar temple. Somebody cleaned house, and it wasn't them. And it was kind of passed off as a cult type suicide. Well, not just not just one mass suicide. Yeah, there there were what was it? Three there were three of them. Was it? Yeah, yeah. One one in Canada, one in France, and one in Switzerland. Yes. I so, um, I th- and I think the leaders didn't die in the first round. The named heads of the order. So there was a kind of first round, and then there was a second round which the leaders died in. And then there was another round. Um, hmm. But the person i came across involved in them had documents and books and he was worried that somebody would come for them at some point um so it that looked from the outside like somebody cleaning house that looked like it had the potential to be another p2 but whatever secret society had spawned it (laughs) helped it (laughs) go off the map as it were because there's something really wrong with it um because they're not suicide you look into it and it's like you know, the members were gathered into a room and they were shot in the back of the head or something. There was, you, you go very quickly from this suicide model to this, these people were assassinated. They, um, that's another thing I was told not to look into too hard. Um. Hmm. Oh, wow. But but on, on the other hand, I mean, a, a lot of the people in Jonestown, um, I mean, that's considered to be a mass yeah. suicide, but a lot of them were gunned down because the faithful yeah. didn't want those who'd lost their resolve or who didn't want any part of this to survive it, so they just killed them. Exactly, yeah. I, I mean, it could have been exactly the same uh, set up. I think there was something about it happening in three stages. Mm. Um, it, it was. I looked. I started looking into it at the time, but I decided not to pursue it. Um, but yeah, I think there's probably research to be done there on what was really the motive. But um, there are people who survived it, and there are people still out there who potentially perpetrated mm. it. So I don't know uh, how far anyone wants to go into that. But they were definitely yeah. an interesting. They were an, another neo Templar group. They claimed to be a Templar group. They were more right. of a charlatan. They were more of a fraud. Uh, they were more cult like. Uh, less of a secret society. But again, their aim was to recruit powerful and influential people, people and moneyed people, not just for the wealth, but the power. So they were clearly mm. on that kind of power trip thing of, of where can we take this? Where, you know, um, they had they had an agenda. So yeah, that's always a risk with any group that meets in secret, whoever they are. You know, um, that mm. it could be distorted. The Illuminati did a great job of recruitment by recruiting from within Masonic lodges. That was their first target because the Masons <laughs> were aligned with a lot of their ideals and it was not It was a small shove in the right direction to get them on board yeah. politically almost. So they took over lots of European lodges and had a lot of success in that because they, they recognized the climate was right for change and people had had enough. And they were also mm. 
leafleting Europe. Uh, they were leafleting France, listing all the crimes of the king and you know the royals and the, the aristocracy. And they were kind of they could see the upswell of what was coming, and they fed into it and just accelerated it. Really, you couldn't claim that oh they were responsible for the French Revolution, them and the Rosicrucians. No, they capitalised on it though. They saw it as an opportunity because it met their ideals. So mm. uh, the timing was right for them. You touched upon recruitment there with uh, secret societies in the 20th century, let's say, because you know, thinking about this from a, a Call of Cthulhu point of view, what, what kinds of people do they recruit and how do they go about doing it? You, you're looking for people who, have, who are publishing or working or creating in similar areas to you. And if you're looking mm. at them in terms of disseminating your knowledge, you want them to be working in those areas. So you might want to recruit journalists if you want to bring something to light by seeding it through the press. Um, mm. If you're looking to do research, you're looking for people who have published or written on certain subjects. What you don't do is answer the door if somebody rings the doorbell and says, can I join? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So they come to you. Uh, the Priory Sign had a really interesting document called The Red Serpent, La Serpent Rouge, which had a lot of esoteric symbolism. It had the Mary Magdalene stuff in there. It mentioned various locations, sans or peace. And it pointed to the Rose Line in France and Rallon Chateau and various places and objects and things. And it was a recruitment tool. They'd mm. send it out to people with this return address who were people that they thought would understand it and get it. Mm. And depending on the response, they would consider... Um, introducing them and recruiting them it's quite inspired really that that reminds me of bletchley park recruiting people during the second world war because they were skilled at solving crosswords and stuff like that Look, looking yeah, for yeah. people who yeah. had the right analytical skills and you actually using crosswords as recruiting tools we, we've seen it on the internet with cicada and things like that decided that things are put on the internet as recruitment tools that if you can solve them um that People are interested in employing you in certain jobs. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. I've been approached and I've been around a few, a few groups. Um, as an unusual aside, I actually did some off-the-books work for the CIA at one point. So okay. it, it is you're kind of around these circles if you're around secret societies. I've met the Belgian Secret Service, uh, met the British Secret Service. Um, I met up with the CIA a lot. Um, they bought me a lot of dinners in Chinatown, and uh, they pretty much paid me in dinners in Chinatown to do some research. Was this during your Rendler Chateau days? Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I seem to remember you mentioning something about that before, about their interest in Rendler Chateau. <laughs> yeah, I mean, being coming across people in – when I was in Rendler Chateau, Mossad were down there. Um, they were quite frightening to be around. I didn't have anything to do with them. I had a picnic, went for a picnic with the Belgian Secret Service, which is the most surreal thing possible. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of people think there were, there's a possibility that when Rome was sacked, the Visigoths came back to the southwest of France uh, with the sackings of Rome, and that includes the menorah, because on the triumphal arch in Rome, you can see the menorah, symbol of Judaism, being taken from the Holy Land. They sacked the temple, <laughs> they took it back to Rome, and then it disappears. The Visigoths sack mm. Rome, and they come back to the southwest of France. So you get one of the things about the Rem mystery is it's idioplastic in that whatever you take to it, 
you'll find. So David Wood says mm. it's all Egyptian and finds loads of evidence. Someone else says, no, it's all about the menorah or, or the Ark of the Covenant or someone else is saying it's the body of Jesus that's down there. And you can find evidence for these things. It's a wonderful <laughs> mystery. It really messes with people. But yeah, so I, I counted a lot of groups, but somebody who'd spent a lot of time in Russia uh, during the Cold War as an American uh, and was protected uh, and was a chaser of money around the world. That was his job. And he was doing some work with the CIA, and he subcontracted <laughs> to me. <laughs> so when you have intelligence services that are interested in stuff like this, is this just because there are members of the intelligence service who are who find this stuff interesting, or yeah. is, the, is this official in any way? It's only official for groups like Mossad, who are obviously out to return anything of great value to the, you know, if the menorah was discovered. uh, Mm. When we were, I did a documentary called Bloodline, where we went into all these kind of things uh, back in 2008, it was released. And we were given the number from a rabbi of a Mossad extraction group. And they said, if you find anything, phone this. And they would have gone into France and took it. So if we'd have found the menorah, um, they'd have been in there and had it out of there and back back to Israel. Yeah, um, huh. it's probably under the Vatican if it's around. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't tell them that they'll be in there and <laughs> that would cause an incident. So yeah, I, I mean we had this kind of approach, legitimate or not, it came from, it came from a rabbi. But by then everything, our phones were tapped. Everything we were being followed everywhere by people in cars. We'd go to breakfast, and it would be me and the director would go to breakfast in this little restaurant in a, in a little hotel in France, sit together on our own, and these two guys would come in and sit next to us on the next table. <laughs> and the room's completely empty, and just listen to us everything we said. And we were followed <laughs> everywhere, so we'd clearly spooked some important people um, <laughs> who were very interested in. And we were researching the idea of the bloodline of Jesus. You know, we were looking for evidence of this. So definitely a crossover somewhere. But I think in in the people that I've met, it's been a personal interest. The guy from the Belgian Secret Mm -hmm. Service, um, he'd kind of somehow through his work got an inkling of the Ark of the Covenant being in the area. And he was an Ark hunter. Um, The Templars maintain it. It's in Abu Dhabi under armed guard, heavily armed guard. Uh, if you want the ark, it's there. Go find it. Which there's evidence for. Every Ethiopian church has an ark of the covenant replica, has a tabot. They're really obsessed with the ark. And the idea is the Queen of Sheba was Ethiopian, and she took the ark because after her appearance in the Bible, it's hardly ever mentioned. It's mentioned once more in passing. Hmm. Up until then, it's it's such a feature. So the idea is that she took the ark to Ethiopia. Anyway. Belgian Secret Service are down there, Mossad are down there, CIA are down there. <laughs> so you're in it. And, it. and it might just be that thing that if one goes, they all go because they all think, well, maybe there is something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you are dealing with people. I, I think a lot of these people, they find the idea of the Templars very romantic and evocative. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the Templars weren't really the important ones. It was the monks. The monks that were with them could speak seven languages. They were the ones that could talk to the Arabs and talk to people and, and learn, uh, the monks. Mm. Um, 
the tempters themselves are pretty much just thugs, <laughs> but they're, they're, kind, they're kind of romanticised. So we'll, we'll let them have their day. Uh, but I think a lot of this stems <laughs> back to them and any information they found there or in Constantinople and brought back into the West, and that whole occult upsurge that comes from that, and the and the Jews moving uh, and bringing alchemy and Kabbalah as well and their own mysticism. Um, and all of that starts to get wrapped up when that secret societies. That's, I think, the real ones where they really stem from. It strikes me that if you're ever in the market for another project, you should absolutely write uh, a, a farce about all the intelligence services of the world descending upon Rendler Chateau because each of them is interested in what's going on. I mean, it, it just sounds like it has the potential to be comedy gold. Yeah, there there is that. You could write definitely uh, a comedy, and there are there are aspects to it that are very surreal. Um, yeah, you can find yourself in some strange situations. With, I mean, I, for some reason, Sufi headquarters in France is down there. So I was mm. with, um, I think it's Iniat Khan's granddaughter, and the Belgian Secret Service and someone else having a picnic. And you think, how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, uh, and then, like six months later, I'm in New York, in uh, Little Italy, with one of the last of the two dons, uh, heads of the mafia families. There was only two left in 2008, um, with the whole family, and I'd been invited to dinner, and I'm sitting there talking to the mafia, <laughs> and they don't do crime anymore. They rent out people to act in films. So if you watch The Sopranos, <laughs> it's full of real mobsters. Mm. <laughs> so that's yeah. that's what they, that's their business now. I mean, they are in a way another secret society, just not so functioning as they used to be. I think. Well, didn't they start out as um, a, as a sort of political uh, insurgency and in-, in Sicily, probably, or in, in the old country? Yeah, I, I imagine so. I mean, some have uh, some. The, I think the oldest one, of the oldest secret society, the Tongs in China. Or a criminal gang, mm. you know, they're thousands of years old. Um, the triads and groups like that. So there are there are plenty of secret societies that go down that route, and because it, it mm. serves the, the idea of secrecy, it serves. You know, I made a lot of comparisons in my book between the Illuminati and um, groups like WikiLeaks. You know, disseminating mm. information to undermine corrupt rulers, which is what the Illuminati did, and is what WikiLeaks do. WikiLeaks do now, mm. and using the same levels of secrecy and, and hiding and and things like that, um, and certainly anonymous uh, carrying on that tradition, and even things right down to ridiculing people. The Illuminati would do, you know, they had journalists in their employ who could write articles that just ridiculed a politician, you know, and undermined them through that. And you can see that mm. tradition right the way through, right to you know the pranks. That are carried out by modern uh, modern groups, counterculture groups, where they they do these pranks on people to undermine their credibility and make them look stupid, make them look how they mm. are. Um, there's a, there's definitely a through line of counterculture in these groups. So, is there anything else that's come out of your research that you can think of that might be of use or of interest to Call of Cthulhu players? Um, holy relics, the value of relics, importance of relics is a whole area you could get into uh, with secret societies, whether they own anything physical, whether they've got something of physical import and what it tells them. What what would it give them? Um, protection from the outside world, protecting the outside world from what they know, which is a really big mm-hmm. one. Um, 
you know, the whole thing around UFOs and the backwards and forwards around that. Uh, there's a lot of nonsense tied up in that that I find quite amusing. Um, but there might be something much darker underneath it. Mm, in Bobby. It's an interesting thing in Roswell. Um, you can work this out for yourself. I have no evidence, <laughs> um, so it's pure supposition. There is one piece of mm. information from Roswell that I was really interested in, and that was that the undertaker in Roswell claimed that the US Air Force, when they went to Roswell and took over the town, ordered two coffins that were four foot high. At the same okay. time, in Montauk Air Force Base, there was an orphanage. Okay. It was an odd place to hold an orphanage. If yeah. you are trying to do flight, one of the heaviest things in an aeroplane is the pilot. You put the three things together. Mm. If you want to lighten the weight of an aircraft, you're ordering four-foot-high yeah. coffins and getting descriptions yeah. of these little figures with bloated faces that have been out in the desert for a week. And there's a children, hmm. appears to be an orphanage on, on within an Air Force base, which is an odd place to put one. And then the story yeah. comes out that it was a UFO and aliens, and the Air Force are like, mm, yeah, we're happy with that. That suits us. <laughs> you could see a line there and think, I wonder if there's something really wrong with that that's really, really dark. And that's why it's never coming yeah. out. That it's, it's not the excuse that the public have dumped, jumped on. It's, it's something far more down to earth and far darker that's behind that. Um, it's, I mean, it's yeah. a very, very dark idea. But compared to the idea that, oh, it's an alien spacecraft, it's mm. kind of like, well, yeah. Has anyone really thought about that? <laughs> there must be, must be oh. a more down-to-earth answer. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I can't prove whether or not the coffins were really ordered. or mm. And if they weren't, it was probably a weather balloon or something Russian, um, which is why nobody expected it to be there, which would have freaked everybody mm. out, so they would have to suppress it. But there are these problems and these conspiracies that do circulate, but you do see out of that grows this entire culture of, cults and ideas and groups um, based on possibly a, a large chunk of misinformation or very likely to be uh, a large chunk of misinformation it might be a cover for something far worse you, you mentioned uh when we were talking before this that uh in your various researches for for different projects you'd spent some time with some uh cults or uh, at least new religious movements uh, yeah. and, and other similar organizations. Are there any particular things you can share that might be inspirational or interesting to the listeners? So I've had two proper experiences or not involvement as such, but experiences of being around. Um, one of them I won't name and won't mm. go into too much detail because it's it's not the one that everyone knows. It's a very small uh group who have a very set idea on reality and science and things like that. Uh, they're not very well known outside of the country that they operate in. They're not in the UK. And they yeah. were disturbing because they were all of a mind and they were all very much of the leader was absolute truth. And the leader was quite clearly um, deluded, I'd say, self-deluded. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was quite uh, interesting. It wasn't anything I didn't expect. It was exactly what I expected, in fact, of that kind of group, and it lived up to it. And they were desperate to recruit, and they were sure that what they knew and what they had was absolute. 
and the evidence they showed me for it was anything but it was a, a magic trick mm -hmm. to some extent um so they were trying to confound people with a special effect on video uh, okay. uh, that looked like something important um yeah and clearly they were trying to build a community they were trying to get funding they were trying to form your own jonestown or your own kind of uh, cult um they were quite interesting to be around uh, at arm's length i didn't have much to do with them or spend much time with them the other group uh, i was invited to mm -hmm. speak at the ramtha school of enlightenment in yelm in the us so ramtha okay. um jz knight is an american woman who saw had a vision or an experience of meeting what she claims is a an atlantean leader a leader from atlantis who kind of manifested seven foot tall guy in her kitchen one day and started talking to her and communicating wow. with her okay this this is already very lovecraftian <laughs> yeah um so she gets this <laughs> this apparition and she starts getting this information and then she starts channeling him um and it's very weird i i didn't have any real understanding of them i was very wary of them but i went and spent a week with them and they do these week-long courses kind of, well not courses mm. they're kind of gatherings um where she imparts teachings and train does different methods of training and that was absolutely fascinating they were completely open they were absolutely lovely at no point did they try to recruit me um mm. They had a whole series of practices and techniques uh, to do with raising consciousness, uh, especially around psychic powers. But her way of imparting this information is she embodies this Atlantean, changes from being a kind of, well, she was, I think she was in her 60s then, smokes a pipe, walks up and down, speaking in a posh Victorian British accent of a man, uh, which is totally incongruent huh. with Atlantis and all of that, and is totally absurd. Yeah. And she can yeah. do that for 30 hours at a time, nonstop, without a toilet break. The woman can just, and she's not healthy looking, she's in her 60s, and she just embodies this person like they've possessed her and talks. And the stuff that comes out is really fascinating and really interesting about consciousness, about society, about everything. It covers everything. It goes off in all, all sorts of tangents. And to me, it's clearly somebody in touch with probably their higher self. The experience was really interesting. They did loads of practices. And one of them, uh, I think it's sending and receiving, is it that one? Um, and what they do is they, they get together in pairs and mm. they meet and that and then they separate and they go to other ends of the room with a pen and paper and then they one of them will send an image to the other through thought and then they draw the mm. image they both do a drawing and then they go and pin them together on the wall and you walk around the wall and all the images are the same i mean they're just it's really and you look at this these people aren't they're not gullible they're actually they're normal people who are very intelligent they haven't been sucked in They've heard about it. They relate to what they hear. So they're attracted to it. It evokes something in them that says, this might be true. You know, they've, they've maybe read about channeling or they've read about something. They read some of Ramsey's stuff and they think, actually, this resonates with me. You know, this makes sense to me. I'll go along. And there's absolutely no pressure to join or to give money or to do anything. You know, it's like, if this mm. isn't for you. And they do other practices that are just phenomenal. 
uh, they do a lot with blindfolds where you wear a blindfold and you sense your surroundings. Um, they do a really odd one where you go out to a paddock, a horse paddock, and it's big. It's not a small one. It's a big one. Three, three stack fence. And you have a piece of paper with your name on folded in half. And you give it to someone mm-hmm. when you go in. And you go in, with a, a, put a blindfold on and go and stand in the middle. And they will go and randomly put it on the fence in the paddock. And when you feel compelled, mm. and I've put the blindfold on, it's completely dark, you go off in the direction that you want to. And you pick, you know, you find your way to the fence, pick up the first piece of paper you find and open it, lift your eyebrow, you know, your eye covering. And if it's not your name, you put it back and you go back to the centre. And there was mm-hmm. a girl there. So if you find one, and people go out randomly, they do it first thing in the morning, they'll randomly just go and try it in a day. And if you find one, you get to hang it around your neck. And you see people with these. And if you saw the size of the field and tried on the, the face mark, this isn't rigged. And they don't know that mm-hmm. I'm watching them. I'm not really, I'm there as a, to- a speaker. Um, and they, it's not like anyone's policing them or, or anything. But you could watch them wander around this field and go and open these things time and time again. And there was a girl there who was about 12, and she had eight of these things hanging off the front of her, mm. where she'd found her name eight times. And you look at that and you think, how did you do that? How did you really? And they've got things like, they've got this maze where they just blindfold everyone, and you go and you find your way through this maze. But to complete it, you have to climb up on top, which you wouldn't know to do. Go along a plank mm. and then jump onto the next piece. And I had one person who actually did it with a blindfold on, not knowing that there was a jump there or anything. So she's doing all this teaching and doing all these practices. There's no drugs involved. There's no psychedelia. And you talk to these people, Mm -hmm. and one of them ran an import-export agency and others hadn't. And they're all down-to-earth normal people who have found their spiritual calling. They found where they believe, you know, something they can believe in. Even though you've got that huge incongruence of a Victorian English Atlantean (laughs) uh, dictating this information I was genuinely um, I found it really really fascinating and I I was kind of interested in going through some of the processes to see what the experience of them was I tried I tried um, they offered to I could do blind archery where they blindfold you and they literally give you a bow and arrow (laughs) and let you loose and it's a proper bow and arrow and I said no (laughs) (laughs) uh, probably for the best (laughs) Um, they didn't yeah, they didn't do it while I was there, but people hit the bullseye. Apparently, I've seen—I mean, I've seen that in Zen. Uh, Zen, mm. there's a Zen archer that could do that bizarrely. Um, uh, so there's something going on there. There's something to them. They have a method. They have methods. They have models. They have beliefs, um, and it's all to do with this kind of focusing the mind, focusing your thoughts. Um, it's, my, it's mental power, it's mind power and what you can really do with that and awareness and consciousness. And that's all it's focused on. Um, there's a lot of money in it. She's done very well out of mm. it. Uh, mm. But it didn't strike me as corrupt. It didn't strike me as tainted. But, I mean, is, is there any chance that that's just because she was taking a different approach to marketing it than you know a lot of cult leaders do in that you know it, it was a soft sell rather than a hard sell because it does strike me i mean someone who is skilled in stage magic and so on could probably put together something along those lines and make it seem very 
plausible if you were caught up in it and that um you know if they use the soft cell technique then that would i, I don't know but, you know it would make you feel less pressured to believe and probably more open to believing than if they'd really try to ram it home i'd get that with the belief side if they were trying to sell you a religion mm. when you've got two roughly 200 people in a room practicing something that has an outcome that's measurable and viewable you, you do think actually whatever mm. she's teaching here seems to have a physical effect on people that they can evidence that clearly isn't rigged you're going to whisper to them the word and then you're going to go away and draw <laughs> a house um and I mean, and there's fa- whole families turn up. You know, it's kind of. Um, I mean, there are rules about you can't have relationships while you're on the campus and things like that. So it's, it's quite healthy in lots of respects. Uh, but they were very open to me and my ideas, mm-hmm. and they allowed me to ramble on stage for a couple of hours, like you have. Um, <laughs> and they had absolutely no problem with any of it, and were full of questions that were intelligent, uh, and didn't try to convince me or convert me of any of it at any time. And nobody at okay. no point did anyone say you should join. It was like, mm. how are you finding it? It's, it's interesting. And, oh, great! You know, and that was it. That was really it. So it wasn't like those people are sent out into the world to recruit, hard sell, or recruit. So I mean, maybe mm. there are groups out there, and that's why, you know, th- that's where the term new religious movements come from. Those are the non mm. kind of not uh, the non toxic versions of. There will be new religions that are formed. Yeah. And some of them might actually be valuable, and some of them might actually uh, help people or, or meet people's spiritual needs. So. When we embarked on the cults episode, I mean, this was one of the bones of contention that we had when we were trying to set out the parameters, which is you know, how do you define a cult in the first place? Mm. Because obviously it is a very pejorative term. As soon as you say that, it brings in all sorts of baggage about coercion and um, mind control and stuff like that. And, um, you know, as you say, the majority of new religious movements aren't like that, but they are mm. going to seem very weird to the outside um, observers. And yeah. trying to differentiate those from the more toxic kind is very very difficult and i think it suits the press and it suits the status quo to keep that opinion and to not give credit to these groups and nobody's going to go in there and film that and show it and you know release it and say hey this is uh, actually this isn't bad this is quite quite positive mm. you know i i met someone once who had a friend and the friend, she always had bad relationships and she was always conned. So she would go into a shop and be shortchanged. She would get a boyfriend and he'd run off with her savings. And she just had this whole list of cases of completely unrelated people conning her. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of what she was attracting. And it was this level of attraction that you kind of attract things. Um, so at some psychological level, you're pull, put, putting out a call that will trigger something in other people. So it's, it's like people that get into fights a lot. Um, mm. There is some part of them psycho- psychologically they've not dealt with. And I think there is something in that. If you could turn that on its head, that you could attract things, that you could. And that's when you're getting into, you've got to be careful of what tools you give people. 
there's, there's all these ideas of how to attract wealth or how to attract power or attract mm. women and, and all those kind of distortions of what might actually be a fundamental psychological um, quality that we have. Um, mm. <clears throat> it's quite Jungian. There's, there's plenty of work being done <laughs> on it. It's not uh, airy fairy. <laughs> Unfortunately, my knowledge of Jung is non-existent. <laughs> That's fine. It, the interesting, there is an interesting thing in the idea of why people are interested in what they're interested in. So if you're really interested in Lovecraft, there's a lot mm. in sort of Jung in psychology about the primal unconscious and the, that really primal, deep, dark, lost parts of yourself in a black abyss. Um which is deeply in your unconscious and going to look for them and trying to face them and trying to redeem them in some way or, or battle with them or whatever you need to do to resolve them, to find peace. And, and yeah, you find people that I, I was attracted to secret societies when really it was my own secrets that I needed to discover my own inner, you know, the work that I needed mm -hmm. to do on myself was just reflected in what I was attracted to in the outside world. I think that happens for most people. So, but you do have to yeah. look at it with something like Lovecraft. Bit of dredging of my yeah. unconscious. It's clearly an old one down there somewhere who's, who's waving at me as if to say, I really do need some attention or I'm going to really wreck your life at some point. <laughs> Speaking of, of Lovecraft, as we sort of circled back there. Are there any other things yeah, you've come yeah. across in your researches and experiences that you think would be of particular interest to Lovecraft fans and Call of Cthulhu players and stuff like that, or prove um, inspirational? I once had a lead that there was something. There was a transmission of knowledge between a German chap called Kell, K-J-E-L-L, -L, who was an artist who randomly sent a document. He was writing his own Necronomicon. He locked himself away to do it. He was only available for his brother. And he'd randomly, uh, he'd done the ritual of the Holy Guardian Angel. Oh, wow. Well, the Abramelin working. Yeah, he'd done the Abramelin. And it had told him to create this thing. It's never been published as far as I can tell. He's still, I still see him on the internet. He has a gallery, which he does with his brother, which is a weird thing about skateboarding and art. And <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's, that's <laughs> totally just so incongruous. Exactly. Um, but he was inspired, he was instructed, shall I say, to send a page. And it was to do with a lost book, and it was sent to Donald Tyson. And he re Tyson oh, received right. it at the time when he was writing the Necronomicon. Mm. And I was told to follow this up because it linked back to another occultist somewhere in England who had had a book that they claimed was um, found in black human skin and had a lamp on the cover. And it, and it was all okay. kind of revolving around this ridiculous idea, idea that the Necronomicon has something to it. But it may not be about the mythos. They seem to think it was more to do with stone circles or trees or something like that. Trees they were very interested in. But I was given hmm. this kind of pointer saying, you should look into this. So I kind of pinged backwards and forwards. And I spoke to Tyson. I got in touch with Donald Tyson and I said, because he's actually written mostly serious magical books. You know, he's a, mm. a serious magical researcher. So why write an Equinomicon? It seems mm. like a, a way of undermining everything you believe and do other than to make money. 
Well, it's, it's not just the Necronomicon he's written, is it? He, he wrote a biography of Abdul Al-Hazred, too, and he's he's delved into all sorts of Lovecraftian yeah, things since then. So th- this is obviously you know, really resonating with him. Yeah, he's obviously gone down that path. He wouldn't really give me an answer other than he just felt he wanted to do it. Um, he didn't have a – I mean, it might be his publisher said, you write one of these, you'll make a stack of money, and off he went. <laughs> I was about um, to say. <laughs> you, you, you never know. Um, but it was interesting that exactly at the same time this mad German artist was inspired to send him something whilst being locked away, drawing his own Necronomicon um, mm. as a piece of art. So I'm not sure what that entirely finished that. But at some point you really should, I think, round up the different versions uh, and mm. see maybe if this. Where did Lovecraft get the Necronomicon idea from? Do we know? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, uh, uh, someday we are going to do an episode on the Necronomicon and dig into that yeah. because, you know, there is all sorts of stuff in his letters and he did write a history of the Necronomicon, this little essay that he wrote, but that okay. was the fictitious history of the whole thing. Um, but, yeah, fundamentally, I I don't know. I... Um, I mean, he was possibly inspired by things like uh, the yellow book in uh, the picture of Dorian Gray and stuff like that, books of hideous uh, sort of sanity-blasting secrets. But, yeah, I, I genuinely don't know. Okay. Because I, I used to look at things like, well, Gripper's quite interesting, but the Picatrix has finally mm. been translated, which is a, a rare magical tome. But the thing with Lovecraft is Lovecraft wasn't actually interested in the occult. I mean, he when no, he did no. his his research into stuff like this, he would basically just crib entire passages from the Encyclopedia Britannica about our chemical okay. texts and magical texts. Um, you know, that, yeah, that that was that was his knowledge. He you know, he had no interest in the occult itself. Okay, I wondered if there was anything behind if he had a come across a source or a, an inspiration. No, no, I don't think so. Okay. It was just uh, an interest because it, it had come round in my mm. researches. This thing had been pinged at me at some point. I originally sort of assumed it was a test and it was a wind-up. Um, <laughs> and then I traced Tyson and talked to him, and then I traced this German guy whose brother would talk to me because he was on this sabbatical. Um, so it was an interesting time in my life. But, yes, you should definitely – uh, go back to uh, the Necronomicon at some point and look at the, mm. the lovely John D version with the Necronomicon, the Miskatonic <laughs> Library stamp in it is just wonderful. Yes. Yeah, because there have been so, so many different versions that people have put together over the years that, you know, from for various reasons that it's, mm. uh, yeah, there, there is, well, I think there's definitely something to the fact that for something Lovecraft just invented out of whole cloth, so many people over yeah. the years have been inspired to try to create something real. Whether that's out of a sense of fun, a sense of mischief, or something else, you know, that seems to vary from person to person. Yeah, it just seems to be it's a very resonant idea that this book exists, mm. or that this book is based on something that's that has some substance somewhere in history uh, as a kind of meme, as a psychological idea. It's got a lot of power. Mm. Uh, that's built up over time. I, I think there there probably is something quite primal about the idea that there is this book of ultimate secrets that will reveal the horrible truth of the universe in its unvarnished entirety. 
And yeah, I mean, whether or not you're interested in in Lovecraft or the mythos or whatever, just I think that idea on its own is quite seductive. Yeah, definitely. The dark aspect of nature revealed. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, I guess we'd better leave it there, but thank you very much, Rob, for, for your time and for sharing all that stuff. I think there is plenty of meaty inspiration in there for our listeners. If people want to find out more about uh, you and your work, is there uh, anything that they can look at online or follow you on social media? Um, I think the easiest way is just look me up on Amazon, uh, Robert Howells. You'll see inside the Priory of Sion and my other books. Um, the Illuminati one might be the most of interest because it's it's about counterculture through history, starting with secret societies and alternative beliefs, moving right up to present day. So that might have the most uh, value to what, what you're trying to look at. Unless you're particularly interested in bloodlines and the idea of blood, you want to go down that route, then the Priory of Sion one. Prophecy, the second book, uh, that's all about prophecy. There's a section at the start of that um, which covers all the different methods of prophecy and prediction and oracles oh, and the wow. like, okay. uh, if that's of any interest. So form, all forms of divination, certain amount of research I did to, on pretty much all of them. So oh, perfect. That might be of use. But yeah, go to Amazon, look up Robert Howells, and I'm in the books in there somewhere. Thanks for your time. I mean, find me on Facebook by all means. I'll link to it all from from the show notes as well, and I'll link to your Facebook page from there too. But yeah, it's been lovely catching up with you, Rob. Thank you again for your time. And uh, thank you. Yeah, cheerio for now. Good gaming. Goodbye. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.